This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, February 8th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. A case going before the U.S. Supreme Court aims to answer some questions about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, specifically when an algorithm serves you a suggested video. Can the providers of those videos be held liable for what happens afterward? Cato's Tommy Berry discusses the case and what it might mean for freedom and accountability on the Internet. This is a highly fraught issue. And uh, it has scrambled a lot of sort of traditional uh, ideas about what individuals should be allowed to say, what companies ought to be able to do, what those associations ought to be. What is this case about with respect to Section 230? So this case is a little bit different from any Section 230 case we've we've seen before. Typically, fights over Section 230 are about whether websites have immunity for things that they host for the mere fact that they're hosting it. Uh, This is a lawsuit raising a new and different uh, theory for why Section 230 should not apply. This is a lawsuit claiming that algorithmic recommendations are not not protected by Section 230. Uh, So the specific facts of this case, um, the plaintiffs are relatives or victims of people in the 2015 Paris terrorist attack uh, perpetrated by ISIS. Their claim is that ISIS recruitment was aided and abetted uh, by YouTube, owned by Google, and that essentially, uh, uh, you know, we've all fallen into that YouTube rabbit hole where you watch one video and then you see it, five more videos like it on the bar on the right. The claim here is that you can fall into a dark rabbit hole if you start watching uh, radicalization videos and see more uh, on the right. And so the claim is that essentially those algorithms that put similar videos uh, in the bar to the right of your screen uh, is essentially a recommendation by the website and that a recommendation is not protected by Section 230. All right. So we're familiar, uh, you and I are familiar with algorithms serving us content, even on Facebook, among our friends, we don't see every post. We see posts of people with whom we are more likely to interact. And uh, TikTok has its own way of doing it. Uh, YouTube has its own way of doing it. These algorithms, we should admit, are written by people and uh, created in such a way that uh, maybe they don't intend some specific outcome but they are attempting to uh, attract and entice viewers to continue watching. That that's right, and that's certainly an accurate description of of the purpose behind them uh, and the, and the reason they've become ubiquitous um, on the internet. What the websites are arguing, uh, defending these practices and arguing that they are protected by Section two hundred and thirty, is that they're also simply necessary given the vastness of of the internet. Whether you want to attract people or not, if you had a YouTube without any algorithmic suggestions for the next video to watch. Uh, as their brief says, it would be the worst TV channel ever. It would just be each video in sequential order with no rhyme or reason behind it, and no one would ever be able to find anything that they're interested in. Um, so I sort of analogize it to if you publish a magazine, you have to publish a table of contents at, at the front, or at the very least, it's a much more usable experience if you do so. Most people don't want to read every single magazine they get cover to cover. Um, and so this is it's the question here is essentially, if you immunize a magazine for the articles, can you really get around that by suing them over the table of contents? To, to some extent, that's what, what this lawsuit is trying to do for the equivalent of a table of contents for the internet. And, and, and it's, 
it's not so clean to say it's exactly like a table of contents, right? It's it's like a tool that automatically generates new tables of contents based on your viewing history, based on what uh, the algorithm believes you are likely to want to watch next. That's right. And that's why these cases always become tricky, because analogies to dead tree media only go so far. And to some extent, First Amendment doctrine or statutory doctrine is more comfortable in the analog realm. And when we try to make these analogies to the digital realm, they're never perfect. And that's why we have to we have these disputes and we have to create new case law for them. So these these algorithms are different in the sense that they're constantly adapting. They're constantly changing based on the inputs that that users put in. But as you said, that that fact that it's user input is it could well be key to this particular case. The fact that YouTube, no one at YouTube says, I support ISIS and therefore I'm going to boost uh, ISIS videos in particular. Um, and that fact makes, from YouTube's point of view, makes it a lot harder to claim that, that they've waived Section 230 protection by virtue of affirmatively choosing to recommend these videos. So in essence, the complainants are arguing that because YouTube has created an algorithm uh, that makes use of all these various inputs uh, and you have a video front and center on your screen and it makes recommendations and you make choices or it automatically rolls on to the next uh, video that you might see on a list, uh, because of that, uh, they are arguing that Google or YouTube rather is making an affirmative decision about what to serve essentially that that at the very least it should be legally the consequences legally should be the same as if YouTube wrote a review saying this is an interesting video i think you should watch it so their brief is full of analogies the plaintiff's briefs the challenger's brief is full of analogies to book reviews food reviews what have you and essentially saying certainly the text of section 230 would not go so far to a youtube written uh, review of a new movie saying everybody should watch this or maybe even more to the point everybody who's interested in whatever cooking shows julia child should watch this um youtube's argument on the other hand is that Again, this isn't like that because no one, no human being wrote a recommendation and they argue it's not even a recommendation in the sense of we endorse this. It's simply a navigation tool of this is similar to what you've watched before. And it's attempting to say no more or less than that. Because I'm imagining writing a review of a restaurant on the Internet and saying, hey, people, you should go to this restaurant. And they do. And it's terrible. And they have an awful experience. And uh, they might believe that I wrote that review in uh, with malice toward readers to send them to this awful experience. And they sue me for intentional infliction of emotional distress because I sent them to this uh, restaurant. What is the level of attenuation between we think you might like this video and the notion that <laughs> that somebody might join ISIS because they, they watched a particular video. Yes. Well, there's a lot of is issues with their legal claims, and that's that's lurking in the background of this case is the fact that even if Section 230 protections didn't apply here, there are a whole host of other obstacles before the plaintiffs here could plausibly get relief. There's another companion case at the Supreme Court at the same time asking whether these, these are even tangible or, or plausible claims 
under the Anti-Terrorism Act. And indeed, one way the Supreme Court could duck the Section 230 question entirely is to simply uh, pretermit the Section 230 question and say these aren't claims you can get relief under for the Anti-Terrorism Act. I think that's a very real possibility of how they might handle this this issue. Um, and then there's, as you say, there's the chain of causality. Is it really plausible that watching three or four more YouTube videos is what made the difference between someone becoming radicalized and not radicalized? And in fact, they don't have any concrete example of a particular perpetrator of the Paris attack who was radicalized by watching YouTube videos. It's entirely speculation at this point. Well, then, then how strong are the legal claims if there is no person that you can point to? There's, it, it's to hear your telling of it, it seems that they're arguing about a potentiality. They are, and this is one of the the weird sort of legal fictions that that often comes up in Supreme Court cases, is that we're at such an early stage in the litigation that in many ways we're fighting over hypotheticals or we're fighting over remote chances. Um, but because Section 230 was intended to be a defense you can raise at the very beginning of litigation, we simply haven't progressed to the point where there could be fact-finding over, is there any, one, any specific person? Um, but that's intentional, is that Section 230 was designed to make websites not even have to worry that they're going to have to go through the expense of litigation. And that's why, among many, many reasons, this is an extremely important case, um, because it will determine at what point, not just might a website lose, but at what point might a website have to fight and go through the discovery process? And in fact, believe it or not, despite Section 230 being almost 30 years old, this is the first case ever that's reached the Supreme Court on the law. So I suppose I can see parts of both sides of this. I could see a company writing an algorithm aimed at doing X and write the algorithm so that it actually does X. And then someone saying, well, you don't deserve protection of this law because you very clearly intended to do this thing. Um, and the company saying, no, no, it's just that's the algorithm at work. That's we uh, we did not intend this. This is just the algorithm working. And the uh, it is it is neutral. The algorithm is neutral. We did not clearly intend this and may perhaps. Uh, there is a, a, a claim to be made that, look, you can write an algorithm to do things and you should be responsible for the things that it does. Yeah, you're homing in right on the crux of the case, which is that Section 230 only applies to information provided by another. And really, the question is, when you have first the baseline algorithm and then the inputs from users that determine what the algorithm spits out, how do you set that dividing line between what's provided by the website and what's provided by another. But the websites have a plausible and I think a, a correct argument that as long as they are neutral, anything that is raising the the legal consequences, the potential illegality of, of these uh, algorithmic outputs, that's all coming from the user. So what do you think? You said you, said you think that uh, the YouTube has a plausible argument here, but, but what, what gives you pause about making that, uh, that claim? Well, I could see it, it, it in an, in a different case, I could see it going too far and I could see um, an algorithm that was intended to send a particular message or, you know, now we're in a new 
realm where we have AI that is spitting out paragraph length essays that look like they were written by a human. And you could certainly imagine a website that tells its AI, okay, I want you to send this message, but you're not allowed to send send that message. We're definitely entering uncharted territory in terms of finding the dividing line between what came from a human and what came from a machine or what was predictable and what was not predictable. Um, but that's that's why uh, another reason that the, hopefully the Supreme Court will will flesh that out and, and set guidelines that websites can can understand and can follow in the future because as much as protections matter, predictability also matters and is and is extremely valuable to these websites. If this is the first case that's gotten squarely before the Supreme Court on this question of this particular piece of federal law, do we have any do you have any expectations about how the court might come down on it? It's much more unpredictable than most for exactly that reason, that we've had nearly 30 years of circuit court level case law and no Supreme Court case law makes it uncertain. Will they go beyond the question presented? Will they upend sort of baseline presumptions that circuit courts have operated under since Section 230 was passed in 1996? Will they go to sort of the protections, the fundamental protections, the so-called 26 words that created the internet um, and and upend those as well, perhaps even for content simply posted by, by another. Um, Justice Thomas wrote a dissent from a denial of a certiorari in a case a few years ago, essentially saying that perhaps the interpretation of Section 230 has gone beyond the text in several instances. So he seems clearly to be at least one member of the court who will be pushing for a more wholesale review of the text, but no one joined that opinion. And so the big question mark is, is there anyone else on the court with an appetite? There's also a question of whether they'll they'll duck it entirely. They could decide this on the Anti-Terrorism Act issue. They could also dismiss it as improvidently granted because there was a weird, I would say, disconnect between the petition that the plaintiffs filed and then their merits brief after the case was granted. The merits brief was a lot less uh, forthright in in what it was asking for, uh, a lot more modest, essentially saying just send it back to the appellate court and ask them to reconsider on uh, on, on the understanding that some recommendations could not be protected. And so the Supreme Court might just say, this isn't the the question you you told us you were going to be putting in front of us. Um, and they've done that in the past when there is a big enough difference between the petition and the merits brief. Tommy Berry is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>